Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. Thanks for joining us again right on the heels of our last podcast. I wouldn't get too used to us getting uh, getting these episodes out so quickly, but glad to have some more content coming after a lull for a while. Today we're joined by the fabulous Marcy Roth with the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies, and we talk through uh, different approaches, um, different frameworks for the inclusion of people with disabilities, access, and functional needs in all cycles of disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. And we really get into a lot of great stuff, getting into the legislation that actually sets the frameworks for doing this, as well as providing tangible solutions and networks for people to access who are looking to do this on the ground and be more inclusive in their disaster strategies. Uh, So uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for joining us. Sit back, relax, and we'll see you on the other side. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Today, we have a great guest. We have Marcy Roth. She's the CEO of the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies, which leads disability inclusive emergency management initiatives for 61 million people with disabilities in the United States and over 1 billion people globally. She was appointed by President Obama to FEMA in 2009, and there she established and served for seven and a half years as the director of the Office of Disability Integration and Coordination. In that role, she managed a team of 185 disability and disaster experts through more than 400 disaster deployments and really worked to transform the field of emergency management to be more inclusive of the rights and needs of the whole community. She's been leading disability rights and health organizations since the mid-90s and has been consulting with businesses and communities before, during, and after the disasters that kind of got us into this new phase of disaster management in 2001. Her recent publications include reports to the President and Congress from the National Council on Disability, and in addition to her U.S.-based work, uh, which also includes some legislative initiatives that we'll talk about today, uh, she's also focused on disability, poverty, and healthcare and disasters globally and is a frequent consultant to the United Nations on disability inclusive disaster risk reduction and humanitarian action. And if that's not enough, she's a, uh, a senior executive fellow with the Harvard Kennedy School and has a BS in public safety administration. So Marcy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today about such an important issue. Well, thank you, Jeff. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you. Well, I, I gave, you know, kind of the quick overview of the bio, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more on kind of your pathway uh, into this work and, and sort of um, your origin story with all of this and, and uh, in your own words, what it is that, that you do and, and why it's so important. Sure. So uh, I have always worked in disability advocacy, uh, disability services, the rights of uh, people with disabilities, but uh, I was... Uh, the director of advocacy and public policy for the National Council on Independent Living back in 2001 when I got a phone call from a colleague in New York City two days after the terrorist attack. And he said, you know, we have a problem in New York City. I said, well, yeah, we know. He said, no, we have an additional problem. We have thousands of people with disabilities living in the frozen zone around ground zero who rely on people to come in, help them to get out of bed, get dressed, uh, get on with their day, people who use paratransit, many people who um, the service providers don't live with them and didn't necessarily live in the community near them, and suddenly those folks could not get in because the frozen zone, you had to show ID for, you know, that, that you live there. So uh, very quickly, it became very clear that we had some very significant issues that needed to be addressed. I was just going to jump in for those listening in. (laughs) These aren't intentional sound effects of the ambulances in the background. I'm recording from my office, and we're right on 125th Street in Harlem. So there's uh, um, some incidental sound effects. So uh, I apologize for uh, interrupting and... uh, the background noise. Incidental and timely, right? Absolutely. So, 
So, um, uh, you know, that began what has been for me um, now an almost 20-year focus on what happens for people with disabilities, uh, children, older adults, um, and other people with access and functional needs before, during, and after disasters. I had the great opportunity to spend about half of that time over the last years uh, working at FEMA and uh, since leaving FEMA in 2017 uh, had the um, uh, great uh, opportunity to uh, uh, begin an organization called the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies. It was born out of a uh, an organization 20 years old called Portlight Strategies. The partnership focuses on advocacy, public policy, um, training, technical assistance, research, and we also uh, provide a variety of disaster response uh, operations support uh, during disasters. So we have uh, teams that we deploy into uh, um, uh, disasters we have um, a hotline that operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week um, to give people with disabilities, the people who uh, support them and um, uh, responders, uh, a place to call and get disability-specific information. So uh, it's been, a, um, it's been a, a journey, and uh, I've had along the way, some great opportunities to work with folks like you, Jeff, around some of the uh, very important aspects of um, uh, identifying, anticipating, and then uh, addressing the, the um, very significant uh, dis, um, uh, disproportionate impact of disasters on people with disabilities. Well, I, I appreciate that, and, and thank you for for uh, kind of sharing uh, even more depth on your background. And, you know, it's funny, I remember sort of during the times while you were at FEMA, I was working in the uh, public health field, in the health and medical field, and, and the preparedness side of things. And, uh, and you could really notice the shift um, as we moved from you know, sort of looking at, well, let's, let's take care of the logistics first, and then, you know, we'll worry about cases of people with disabilities and then going from it being treated as a special case to actually know it has to be integrated in with everything. And I know that that was driven um, very largely by a lot of the work that you were doing at FEMA and a lot of the policy work and uh, practical work with that. There, there was a, um, I, I recall, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I know the starting point for a lot of this on why it was necessary. Of course, there's a very strong sort of practical argument. But if I recall, you also um, brought a lot of kind of the legal requirement for doing this. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. I believe it was through the, um, was it through the Americans with Disabilities Act or was it through the civil rights requirements and the civil rights laws that actually required this as well? I, I, and maybe you can sort of correct what I'm stumbling around on here. No problem. No problem. Actually, um, you're, you're right on all counts. So uh, back in 1973, the Rehabilitation Act was passed, and uh, the Rehab Act, among many things, requires that every federal dollar spent um, and every federal dollar given to uh, grantees and subgrantees uh, must be spent in compliance with physical access, so building the built environment, Program access, meaning that you know people with disabilities uh, have to have equal access to all programs and services that receive any federal funding, and effective communication access. So uh, you know all information, all um, uh, means of communication using any federal funds must be um, uh, provided in a non-discriminatory fashion and uh, equally accessible to people with disabilities. Along the way, the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990, which extended the, uh, um, uh, the, the civil rights obligations beyond federal funding to include state and local governments, 
places of public accommodation, um, uh, businesses, and it really then expanded uh, uh, the the requirements for non-discrimination and equal access. And then in 2006, with the passage of the Post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act, um, the Stafford Act was uh, amended to include disability in its uh, non-discrimination obligations, and it was also, um, uh, the Stafford Act was amended to uh, require that FEMA bring on a disability coordinator with a variety of uh, responsibilities to ensure that people with disabilities have uh, equal access before, during, and after disasters. Uh, one other point about the legal requirements, and that is that because these are civil rights obligations, there are no waivers. You know, even in a disaster, there may be some uh, regulations that can be waived. Civil rights obligations are never waived. So um, you know, key, key elements that brought us to a point where um, it then became uh, very necessary for FEMA to uh, address exactly how to support states and local communities, and most importantly, disaster-impacted people with disabilities um, to ensure that they had equal access before and after disasters. Yeah, you know, and these kind of legal frameworks are so powerful. I remember, um, at least in, in you know my vantage point, where I first really started seeing this um, present itself kind of in the emergency management thinking was particularly around um, shelter planning, of course. And, uh, of course, shelter planning is a very difficult thing to do under all circumstances. Um, and I remember when, when a lot of the FEMA guidance was coming out and shelters were being set up in the communities and then um, really this mandate and sort of referencing back to that civil rights language that this wasn't something that you could, you know, work your way around or something like that. But it did. It sort of just um, linking it by law into uh, the rights of the individuals uh, just carried a weight to it that a lot of other challenges in emergency management didn't have that, um, let's say, clarity of direction in terms of what they could do and, more importantly, what they could not do, that this really, this was what had to be achieved and um, I think gave a lot of clarity to the uh, to the process. I, I'm curious, you know, over the years, and, you know, as you mentioned, you've been involved in this uh, certainly since 2001 and, and, and even before, um, and, you know, we've, we saw the just tremendous challenges with Hurricane Katrina and some of the, I mean, tremendous, um, well, failures, quite frankly, in terms of uh, really across the board with this, and then a lot of reforms since then in emergency management, and I know you were part of the group at FEMA that that really, you know, helped that create that shift to the whole community. What are your thoughts in terms of kind of what are we seeing, uh, where are we at with all of this? What are we seeing that we're doing better? since these prior disasters? What are we seeing more consistently done? And what are some of the areas where we still have uh, a bit more work to go and, uh, and a lot more to do where we, where we haven't gotten where we should be yet? So, uh, you know, we've, we've certainly made a lot of progress in talking about, or as I often say, admiring the problem. Um, I can't say with confidence that we've made a huge amount of progress in terms of what really happens for people with disabilities in disasters, what really happens for children with disabilities and their families, what really happens for older people who uh, need certain kinds of assistance in order to maintain health, safety, and independence. And so I think there's a lot more discussion there is a lot more, uh, you know, I, many, many what what we refer to as, you know, in emergency management is, you know, uh, after action lessons learned, um, except we seem to keep talking about lessons learned and we seem to not then demonstrate that we've learned those lessons in the next disaster. So, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, no, our our, our director, Dr. Irwin Redliner, talks about this a lot and about how, you know, we call it lessons learned, but they're not actually applied. So they're really more like lessons documented. Yes. <laughs> but but to actually translate that into improved action and things like, you know, I, I'm curious, are there uh, is there like a shining example that you've seen in your work of a group that's done it right, maybe even in one specific circumstance? But, you know, is there um, maybe from the recent hurricane seasons, is there something that stands out as, you know, here here's a um, here's an illustrative example on how it can be done or should be done or or, or where you would want to see things? Well, so so, um, you know, one of the areas where we are experiencing a lot of progress is in um, uh, community organizations, public health, emergency management, and um, uh, you know, folks like us who work on this stuff on a daily basis are really working together to um, drive the kinds of outcomes that we need for people with disabilities and families to, to be experiencing. So, um, uh, you know, while I don't, I can't point to any particular community that we can say with confidence is getting it right. Um, I can tell you that, you know, for example, I was recently out in Colorado where they've hired a, um, an access and functional needs the um, uh, lead for the state emergency management, and she works with each of the, uh, they've broken up their state into regions, and um, those regions are working on their own uh, disability inclusion initiatives, and a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to spend the day with them, uh, hearing about the progress that they're making and um, uh, the, the steps that they're taking to build capacity. And now we're going to take uh, the progress that they've made and they're going to hold two conferences. We hold conferences called Getting It Right. We've done a number of them across the country. They're gonna hold two Getting It Right conferences in November. Um, we'll be supporting them, but they're leading the way. And that's the kind of promising practice that um, I think will, in fact, translate into good outcomes, not only for people with disabilities, but for the whole community. Because when people have the ability to maintain their health, their safety, and their independence, not only do they benefit, but the whole community has, um, uh, you know, they, they, they're able to um, uh, optimize limited resources. In communities that still rely on people being sent to the hospital simply because they need a, a plug or because they need a refrigerator for their medication, um, you know, those are the kinds of examples of where, um, you know, we really put a whole community in jeopardy not just those individuals. The emergency room is the last place we want to be sending people who simply need to maintain their health. So again, this Colorado example shows a lot of promise. Another really great example that just came across my desk uh, this afternoon, and it was such a great example that I've been sending it out and cheerleading, the Access and Functional Needs Coordinator for the state of North Carolina sent out a request. They're looking for shelter space that can accommodate a, you know, a particular uh, segment of the population, uh, you know, 500 people. It needs to be, uh, you know, the, this space needs to be able to accommodate a variety of things and they put it out to the whole community. Help us find an accessible uh, building that we can begin to plan for using to accommodate the whole community. So rather than it operating as a sort of a you know um, emergency management doing this uh, uh, without the engagement of the community, and then the community shows up during a disaster and needs aren't being met. This way, folks are being engaged right from the start. 
help us to find what's going to work for our community. That's such a promising practice. Um, and, and I, you know, I have other examples, um, but, you know, those are the kinds of things that are beginning to shape what we hope will be far better uh, outcomes than we've been seeing, uh, you know, even as recently as, uh, you know, um, uh, evacuations um, uh, and, you know, response over just the last few weeks. Yeah, and, and there's so many great points in there. I want to um, kind of unpack a few of them. I know we first crossed paths uh, professionally uh, when I was at another center working on a training program on people with medical dependencies. And I, I'm so glad you brought up kind of this issue uh, through this approach, like you mentioned, by, by sustaining people's independence. Um, then you actually reduce that denominator. You reduce the number of people who need the resources. And, uh, of course, one of the things we found um, through the people with medical dependencies is that so many are in the community now and they're provided with resources every day that sustain their independence. And when a disaster disrupts those, what do they do? They go to the most acute setting possible, right? You said the hospital when someone just needs to plug in an oxygen concentrator. Um, and instead of kind of defaulting to that, having a little extra capacity at the shelters or having a little more awareness among uh, members of the community in terms of what's needed can actually keep that acute care bed open for someone who really needs it um, and who really truly can't be accommodated anywhere else. We were doing some work, um, Harvey, post-Harvey, with some uh, uh, funding coming from some celebrity donors and uh, trying to get to some of the groups that could uh, have impact in ways that some of the uh, uh, can address issues that were very community-based that were maybe under the radar. We're going to take a while for um, larger groups to get to. Um, and actually, I remember connecting with uh, uh, Portlight on, uh, for one of those grants, and um, a lot of the work that they did was to just get replacements for some of the equipment that people use to sustain their independence, wheelchairs, durable medical equipment, things like that for people with medical dependencies, people with disabilities, access and functional needs. And, uh, uh, and the model, at least in this specific engagement we had, was to purchase it right away and get it in people's hands because every day that they didn't have it, they you know, were in need of someone else's assistance and restoring that independence. And again, all just kind of echoing things that you say is that it, it's not just a uh, an issue of, of rights and dignity, which in and of themselves, I think, are enough of a reason to do this, but it, it also makes the job of the emergency manager easier. It extends the reach of the critical care resources when they don't need to um, uh, uh, take care of something that can be met through uh, uh, better preparation, better planning. So um, uh, it's, been, it's been good to see these examples crop up, but again, also a stark reminder when we see these videos, like the, the um, I forget if it was in Texas or Florida, but the nursing home where the residents were posting on Facebook up to their waists in water because they hadn't been evacuated and things like that. Unfortunately, we're still seeing too many of those. Well, and, and just the other day, uh, there was an update, uh, you know, the, the um, uh, Health and Human Services, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, issued an emergency preparedness rule for uh, Medicare-funded facilities like long-term care facilities. Um, it, it, there was a, a, an article just the other day, I think CBS, reporting that there are still hundreds of nursing homes and um, uh, uh, assisted living facilities that, um, even though they're required, still don't have generators. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's these sorts of shortfalls that create horrific situations like the folks who were up to their waist, uh, in water, like the, uh, unfortunate, uh, situation where folks died, um, in a nursing home, mm -hmm. uh, because of a lack of, of power. Um, and, you know, these are, unfortunately, as stark as these examples are, they're not the least bit uncommon. Um, we recently had the opportunity to uh, contribute uh, to uh, a report that uh, was submitted to the president by the National Council on Disability. And that report 
uh, on institutionalization of people with disabilities during disasters. Um, you know, despite the many years of of laws, despite Supreme Court decisions like the Olmstead decision that uh, requires that people are served in the most integrated needs, we still find ourselves in situations where people are placed into uh, more restrictive settings and those restrictive settings, like long-term care facilities, like nursing homes, aren't doing what they need to be doing to uh, uh, adequately prepare to meet the needs of people. Yeah, yeah. And kind of along those lines, too, I know that uh, you've been working on a couple of pieces of legislation um, and your organization um, really looking at um, both the um, healthcare aspects of this as well as kind of the, the disabilities access and functional needs. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um, about what those pieces of legislation are, what they're um, uh, intended to do, and uh, where they're at kind of in that in that process. So about a little more than a year ago, uh, we started talking about uh, the, the gaps that we were seeing in uh, both um, existing law and in implementation. And uh, uh, Senator Casey from Pennsylvania um, uh, took the lead on the development of two pieces of legislation. Um, and uh, I will tell you about those in a moment. Um, those two pieces of legislation, uh, one is called the Real Emergency Access for Aging and Disability Inclusion for Disasters Act, uh, also for short, READY Act. The other piece of legislation is the Disaster Relief Medicaid Act, we also call that DERMA. Uh, those bills were introduced in June uh, in both the House and the Senate. Um, they are bipartisan bills. Uh, they have a, a, a Democrat and Republican co-sponsors. And um, these two bills hold a tremendous amount of promise for um, uh, addressing many of the Polls, many of the concerns that we have uh, about outcomes for people. So um, the Disaster Relief Medicaid Act, or DERMA, focuses on uh, not just people with disabilities, but anyone who is a um, Medicaid-eligible individual who is impacted in disasters. Uh, people may not be aware that uh, Medicaid uh, eligible folks, um, uh, if if they have to evacuate out of their service area, um, which is usually the boundary of their state, they are no longer eligible to receive the uh, uh, services that are covered under Medicaid. So somebody who evacuates from uh, you know the state of uh, Louisiana to the state of Georgia no longer has Medicaid coverage, um, that Medicaid is not portable. So DERMA would, for disaster-impacted people, enable their Medicaid to evacuate with them, and they would continue to receive the health maintenance and community supports that they were receiving in their home state, in their host state, for up to a period of uh, two years. Very, very important uh, for both disaster-impacted states and the states that are receiving people um, uh, who uh, may uh, very quickly have uh, medical uh, health conditions that will deteriorate if they don't have uh, the health care that they need. The other bill is, uh, as I said, we call it the READY, R-E-A-A-D-Y, Disasters Act. And um, the READY Act is um, a, uh, uh, it's legislation that will um, uh, provide solutions, again, to help people to maintain their health, their safety, 
and their independence before, during, and after disasters. And READY contains a number of uh, elements. One is funding research on how local communities, how first responders, public health providers can um, do a better job of being ready for disasters, to do a better job of engaging the community. The uh, READY Act includes uh, a development of uh, technical assistance and training centers to um, uh, provide support to those local communities. It creates a national commission on disability, aging, and disaster that would um, uh, provide guidance on the issues that uh, local communities um, are needing uh, help with. It would, as well, um, uh, uh, look to the Department of Justice for a review of their uh, Project Civic Access settlement agreements to make sure that all of the orders had been uh, uh, carried out. And then finally, it would uh, uh, look to the Government Accountability Office to do a review of all of the federal funds that have been expended in disasters to ensure that um, those federal dollars have been spent in ways that um, uh, uh, provide that physical access, program access, effective communication access, uh, and that um, investments in communities after disasters are uh, invested in ways that actually uh, will help those communities to become um, more disaster resilient. Uh, there's a lot of uh, work on community resilience in the U.S. and globally, but unfortunately, very often, uh, all that work does not include accessibility. Mm -hmm. It doesn't include rebuilding, um, optimizing universal design to, to make our, our living spaces more accessible to everyone, um, uh, missing the opportunity to build for um, an aging uh, community. And um, so this element of the bill would uh, take a look at how those funds have been spent to um, ensure that investments are being made that benefit the whole community um, before the next disaster. You know, and these are just two such hugely potentially impactful pieces of legislation. Um, and I love that they're both linked with uh, um, both with the requirements to do it, but also with the funding that comes through for doing all of this. I mean, the, the um, portability of Medicaid benefits. I mean, imagine that situation where, you know, you're, you know, it's public health 101, right? Preventing or maintaining uh, um uh, a, a medical condition is far less disruptive to the individual, far greater for promoting health, and much, much cheaper and less burdensome on the, on the community if they're able to sustain that. And so being able to not have the dis that disruption because of a, a um, uh, political boundary that's crossed that leads to a, a cessation of benefits and then, and then really looking at the larger piece in terms of the, you know, um, just furthering how this is built into the way we do disaster planning and even recovery planning. You know, I feel like um, for so many years, recovery was one of those things similar in the after action reports that said, oh, we got to get to that. Oh, we got to get to that. And now with, um, you know, a couple of dozen major disaster recoveries underway, uh, we're finally getting to it, <laughs> whether we like it or not. Um, and to really look at how to kind of take these these lessons and, and put them in there. Um, what's the uh, current state of these? And I apologize if you said this earlier. Um, are they um, in committee right now? Have they have they gotten through the Senate waiting in the House? Or um, uh, what's the uh, status in the uh, legislative process? Right. Uh, both bills in both the House and Senate are in committee. Um, we have uh, uh, we have over 135 uh, organizations that have signed on in support. We have a growing number of um, uh, co-sponsors in both the House and the Senate. We had uh, lots of community leaders 
on the Hill over the last couple of weeks uh, during the uh, anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And uh, so those numbers are growing. Congress is uh, you know, on recess uh, for the next uh, six weeks or so. And we are very hopeful that at the end of the summer, um, that uh, you know, continued focus will uh, move these bills, um, which are, you know, these are uh, yeah. disasters, as we both know, have no political boundaries. Right. So really hope that uh, everyone will uh, uh, you know, work together to make sure that uh, every community has the ability to prepare for, respond to, and recover from whatever the next big thing is, is going to be. Yeah, and I'll link to the uh, to the page that you guys have on the legislation as well, too, the reaadi.com. Um, and so folks can kind of see that in the podcast description and link there. And, and I know you have updates on, on where the legislation is, what it is, and uh, a lot of other great information there. So we'll make sure folks um, uh, check it out, um, check it out often, and definitely, um, you know, can participate in the advocacy for that and uh, continue to grow the course for um, uh, getting these kinds of things through. Um, so, so recently, um, I know uh, you and I met when you were in New York City uh, doing some uh, presentations at the United Nations, and uh, just, I think, last week or the week before, you were in, uh, what was it, New Jersey for a field hearing from one of the congressional um, subcommittees that was looking at uh, uh, these issues. And so I, I'm curious, sort of from your perspective, we've been talking primarily domestically right now, but you also have this great global and international perspective on this. And I'm curious where you see, is this uh, sort of a common theme in terms of the challenges and opportunities? Is it something that's very different globally? Uh, of course, that's probably a false <laughs> dichotomy, right? It's probably a little bit, some similarities, some differences, but I'm curious, uh, uh, from your perspective, what are some of the similarities? What are some of the differences? So, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to do quite a bit of work with the UN over the last uh, couple of years, and um, I have been really uh, heartened to see how many countries are working hard to include people with disabilities at the table. You know, ever since the um, uh, Sendai framework was, uh, you know, the, the Sendai framework is a, you know, global disaster risk reduction initiative that um, has been outlined for uh, the years 2015 to 2030. Uh, Sendai framework goes into you know great uh, uh, detail throughout the framework on the inclusion of people with disabilities, inclusion of children, older folks, and other people who are typically marginalized, disproportionately impacted. And the work that's happening uh, around the world, um, on implementation of these disaster risk reduction initiatives is uh, powerful. Uh, I've also uh, recently been um, involved in a UN, um, the um, Interagency Standing Committee on Humanitarian Action and Persons with Disabilities and uh, participated in the development of guidance for humanitarian actors that um, I believe is uh, to be published any day now. Um, very exciting. And so, um, you know, th these, are, uh, these are initiatives that there are some um, uh, guiding uh, principles that uh, uh, countries have taken a, a leadership role on um, the, um, the uh, UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is, uh, you know, includes an article that uh, focuses on disability crisis and disaster and uh, conflict, and um, you know, countries across the globe are actively at work in turning these words into actions. 
Um, earlier today, I had the great opportunity to spend time with some officials from South Korea who were here in the U.S. learning about disability inclusion in disasters. We had a fabulous discussion. They are so interested in how to engage disability community leaders as partners in planning and throughout the process of you know, responding um, and then recovering from uh, disasters. And you know, so I have examples from uh, across the globe where um, uh, big progress is being made. Uh, here in the U.S., I had, again, last week, um, I was invited to testify at the um, uh, U.S. House of Representatives Homeland Security Committee uh, Subcommittee on uh, Preparedness, Response, and Recovery. Um, Chairman Payne from New Jersey invited a field hearing to be held in his district. And um, you know, we had an opportunity to hear from local and state uh, folks involved in disability um, and uh, the issues um, you know, around recent disasters. Uh, we also heard from the Government Accountability Office, who um, uh, had recently issued uh, some findings about uh, some of the very significant shortfalls in uh, uh, FEMA's uh, disability inclusion uh, efforts of late, and um, uh, we, you know, and then I had an opportunity to speak to uh, the concerns that disability leaders across the country and our allies and partners uh, have been uh, trying to address. Um, you know, where we can with the federal government and uh, where we haven't been as successful in moving forward to make sure that um, you know, the, the, the folks who are impacted in disasters um, continue to be the focus and that um, their rights and needs continue to be um, a priority. In well, it's great that there's so much um dialogue about this at so many different levels, both nationally and globally, um, albeit, you know, recognizing there's still a lot of work to do and that talk ultimately needs to lead into action. <laughs> and there's a few steps in between there to get it there. But still, I think just absolutely wonderful to know that, you know, this work is bringing out so many different champions, so many different folks who are striving to do better. Um, and along those lines, so, you know, if I'm a, a, an emergency manager or um, even in a graduate program studying disaster science or things like that, um, but eventually, you know, working my way into the field of disaster management, like a lot of uh, listeners to this podcast kind of come from all across the spectrum of being in the field, of being in the pipeline, of being all different places. But what is it, what, what are the things that I can do? What are the things that they can do? Um, on a on a kind of a ground level to better integrate uh, the needs of people with disability access functional needs into the kind of work that we do what would you suggest well i think you know first and foremost um you know if we, if we continue to see the needs of uh you know 26 percent of the population people with disabilities one in four adults if we continue to see the, um, uh, uh, if we continue to see planning inclusive of the whole community as something that's somebody else's responsibility, um, you know, if we don't invite the experts to the table, uh, disability community leaders, um, you know, if we don't take those opportunities, you know, if you continue to do what you've always done, you will continue to get what you've always gotten. Mm -hmm. Um, I would encourage that uh, you know we, uh, we we follow one of my very favorite um, uh, uh, proverb, um, which is um, uh, crisis is an opportunity riding on a dangerous wind. I absolutely love wow. that. Yeah. Yeah. 
crisis is an opportunity riding on a dangerous wind. So much as we, uh, you know, we are we are challenged by disasters, we also need to seize the opportunity to build stronger, more resilient communities. The Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies works with everyone who shares our interest. Um, we are, uh, you know, we, we welcome every opportunity to be at the table for discussions, to bring local folks who have expertise to those uh, local communities uh, to, to contribute their knowledge. We are, um, uh, you know, whether it's working on policy issues or whether it's working in partnership with, uh, you know, our members uh, uh, reach every congressional district in the country, just about every community. Um, we uh, would encourage folks who are uh, uh, listening to this discussion, if you don't know how to engage local disability uh, community leaders, uh, let us help you. We will be happy to connect people. Uh, we welcome every opportunity to participate in the development and delivery of training, providing technical assistance. We know that there are folks who don't know how to do this. They want help. They want to get it right. I don't think there's anybody out there that wants people to um, experience harm in disasters. There are people who are able to assist and able to guide local communities states and all players to um, uh, improve how we get ready for, respond to, and then recover from, to move on uh, with our lives. So uh, plenty of opportunities for engagement, um, uh, many opportunities for dialogue, uh, discussion about what's working, uh, putting our heads together and coming up with uh, you know, new approaches. I you know, I just just wanted to add, actually learning those lessons and then teaching others what it is that we're learning so that they too um, can uh, learn those lessons. I, I, I love it. And I love too how, you know, just the approach that you're taking and the, the networks that you're establishing also brings folks into a broader community. <laughs> you know, it's something with a lot of work that we do locally is you know, um, uh, folks can sometimes feel isolated, um, like they're the only ones doing this. And then to be able to tap into a network of other folks looking at this and other folks looking at it um, nationally at their level to bring in expertise is just such an, uh, such an incredible thing. It, it also reminds me, I appreciate your point too, about, you know, looking within the community and, and looking at the groups that are already doing this work. Some um, uh, work that we did in the past under some CDC funding for um, um, health looked at kind of the human services community and we were meeting with a lot of folks and um, uh, in one area affected by uh, Hurricane Sandy and a lot of these human service organizations wanted to be a part of the response but they didn't want to be responders and it was we were like no it's okay we don't want you to be responders either but we just want you to keep doing what you're doing these were groups like uh, meals on wheels like the visiting nurses association groups that you know provided services to people with disabilities access and functional needs and that that if they could just keep if they were part of the conversation and and part on the radar of emergency management and the first responders were maybe a fairly simple thing that they need to keep going um, where they could continue to serve and continue to facilitate the independence of, of individuals in the community, that it, it uh, um, paid off both in terms of outcomes and in uh, alleviating some of the burden on the emergency management and, and first responders. And so, you know, it, it's just amazing how much the field has evolved uh, from, you know, being kind of the extension of the first responder community to embracing whole community and this obviously furthers that in, in such a big way. Um, so you mentioned a lot of the work that you're doing. Um, how can folks kind of stay part of the conversation? How can they follow uh, the work that you're doing, the work that your organization is doing? Um, and, and I swear these sirens are not 
well-timed <laughs> sound effects that it's actually this is uh this is uh yep. where i do my work <laughs> um, um but not, enough about me um how can they how can folks uh, stay engaged with this conversation after listening to the podcast how can they follow your work and and uh um be part of the resources and and draw on the resources that you're you're creating thank you jeff um first and foremost uh we are um, you know, very active in uh, social media. Um, the partnership uh, for inclusive disaster strategies. Um, you, know, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can uh, we, we have a Twitter account, Disaster Strat. Um, we uh, our website, of course, uh, DisasterStrategies.org. Um, also, our um, our partners. Uh, Portlight, which is portlight.org. Uh, you can always reach out to me directly uh, at Marcy, M-A-R-C-I-E, at disasterstrategies.org. And, um, you know, we uh, welcome uh, any opportunity to connect with folks and uh, introduce you to the information that we have available on our website, the you know information that we're sharing uh, on social media, uh, as you said earlier, our ready.com website. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're interested in attending our weekly stakeholder calls, uh, we welcome folks with open arms. Uh, we meet every Tuesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. Um, we have folks from across the country uh, who get together on a weekly basis to uh, discuss uh, ways we can anticipate um, uh, issues, how to uh, address those issues, brainstorming solutions, and how we can be better partners for our government and um, uh, non-government uh, allies. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marcy. Thank you so much for joining us to talk through all of just this amazing work that you're a part of and that you're doing. And also just, um, you know, uh, thank you for doing all of it and, and for sharing this, sharing the, the, the lessons, the insights, what's going on the legislative level, but also what folks can do in their own communities to be part of this kind of national and international movement. So um, thanks so much for joining us and uh, um, we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be working alongside. All right, thanks again to Marcy for just a fantastic discussion and some great resources for building more inclusion for people with disabilities, access, and functional needs in all of our disaster strategies. If you like what we're doing here on the podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going, let's keep it going. Let's keep it going on Twitter. We're at DisasterPolitik. If you want to be a guest on the show or want to say something or uh, take the conversation a little more private, uh, you can email us. We're at DisasterPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Thanks for sticking with us. And uh, whatever you're doing next, stay safe out there.